Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom, truth, and power of your word, and especially the immovability of all your promises. You have promised wisdom to all who ask in faith, so grant us to grant us now the gift of heavenly wisdom, so that as we study your word in the letter to the Hebrews, our understanding of your counsel might grow, that our faith would be strengthened, and that we our lives would be conformed more and more to your will after the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so last time we got to the end of chapter 5, verse 10, and we stopped there not just because time ran out, but also because the next section really begins there. These chapter divisions, as usual, are in all the funny places. So the next section starts in chapter 5, verse 11, and runs uh, quite smoothly to chapter 6 and verse 12, where the next segment begins. And so if you wanted to have a chapter division, that's where... Uh, you should put it. Unfortunately, you've, you missed that opportunity already, so we'll just have to live with the ones that we have. Uh, before we start, does anyone have any questions about anything that we have covered so far, or any or any, anything else that might be this might be the right forum to ask it at? Hearing none, uh, what I suggest we do then. Uh, is read, and what I like really to do is to read from uh, chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, uh, verse 12. Maybe if we could, somebody reading from 5.11 to the end of 6.3, and then another person pick up from 4 to 12. I can do the first bit. Thank you. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the words of, in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Well, I can continue. Thank you. Um, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heaven, heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they have crucified, since they are crucifying uh, once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for, for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But it, it if it bears uh, thorns and thistles, it is worthless 
and near to being cursed, and it, its end is to be burned. Though, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of, of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Thank you. Um, in a letter that is famously very uh, dense in his style, this passage certainly does not disappoint in packing an awful lot uh, into a short passage. So we'll, we'll need to spend a little bit of time in uh, disentangling this. But before we do that, um, and this is where I get my, my, my little, um, uh, my chit from the bookies out. Um, any, are there any, any particular issues that sort of jump out at your questions um, or comments or thoughts about the passage that we've just read? Well, actually, I noticed only now that we were reading it, it for, um, or the writer says, uh, that, uh, we need to teach you again the basic principles. And then later on in chapter six, uh, leave the elementary doctrines. So I don't know if basic principles, elementary doctrines are anything to do, you know, are the same thing or what, but, you know, it just jumped out to me now, just now this evening. Okay. I've never noticed it before, actually. <laughs> I, my understanding is that they're referring to the same things. So yeah. two, two sets of things based one set of things by two different names, elementary doctrines, basic principles. But it, it's like, you know, he first says that, you know, you have to be, you, you need teaching on the basic principles and then saying, leave those and then go to something else. So it's a bit, uh, puzzling. Okay. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so that the whole, whole, whole point of, I feel like there's a, there's a danger in, in, in understanding in such a way so we can move away from from some core principle, core doctrines, if you like. So the question is, how do we understand that, uh, that kind of movement? What, what kind of moving away is it? And what, what isn't it? Thank you. Anything else? Well, I'm struck by the, oh, it's not a question, but just struck by this idea that if you have turned away from your salvation, the idea that you can, it seems to be saying that you then cannot be saved even if you were to return to it, but I may have misunderstood. And I can now go and collect my winnings. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'll just say, we'll look at that more carefully. That passage, that particular uh, pair of verses, is one of the chief reasons why Hebrews was received very slowly in the whole church. Remember, at the very beginning of our series of studies, I talked about those books of the New Testament that were not uh, universally accepted as apostolic, uh, Jude to Peter and Hebrews and Revelation. And one of the reasons why Hebrews was so slow to be adopted was this verse. And we have evidence from the first half of the second century of Christian writings trying to deal with it and trying to say what it doesn't mean. Or how you can get past that. So it's clearly, and, and, uh, Luther, in his preface to Hebrews, referred to this as 
uh, as a, a knotty passage. You know, it's not, uh, which, which really seems to, seems to trouble us and, uh, and it tries, it's a good example of that thing that I mentioned in, in, in a sermon. I think I was in the Bible study a couple of weeks ago that it's from that line from C.S. Lewis that it's not the passages we don't understand that trouble us, but the ones we do understand. It's a troublesome passage because of what it clearly seems to say, not because we don't know what it's saying. Well, we will certainly spend some time on that in a moment. Rosemary. I don't understand a lot of it, so you'll have to explain without me giving out questions. I will. That is that. That is the uh, remit of this whole evening. Yes. Mm. Anything else before we start? Uh, in earnest. Well, if not, let's go back uh, to the beginning. And so, just before, obviously, the, the our, our passage starts with the word about this. So, what is the this? Who can remember or quickly scan what, what we looked at last time? Uh, French so, the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Yes, yeah, so it's the priesthood of, uh, the priesthood of, uh, uh, after the order of Melchizedek, um, and which, which obviously it comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. So it could be referring to that topic of the priesthood, the, the Melchizedekian uh, priesthood, or it could be referring to this passage that is being, in, is been expounded, that verse, 110 verse 4. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's referring to the whole, the, the, the topic that has been introduced, uh, in that previous chapter, which as I said last time, and as, 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 as you know, will become the core argument a little bit later on in the letter. It's like at the heart of the whole argument is that thing. But at this point, he seems to take the author or the author or authors, uh, seem to kind of take a, a, a little step sideways at this point. And instead of pursuing that argument, um, he stops for a moment the argument for a passage of admonition. And that admonition relates to what we think from the reading between the lines, not very thinly, not very thinly disguised, the concern about apostasy, the concern that these people uh, to whom he's writing are in danger of forsaking the faith, presumably because of persecution or the fear of persecution, or at least some kind of pressure that is, is, is sufficient for them to want not to, uh, for them to want to uh, give up on their Christian life and their Christian faith. And because of this, he, said, he, he says, and, and all the translations say this, about this we have much to say. I did read one commentator on this, one scholar who says actually that's it actually in, uh, that what what I'd actually wish to translate the notes that, that about this we have much to say, but rather this is a profound or even difficult, you know, profound uh, thing uh, that is said to us. Um, but we'll, we'll stick with the tran- uh, the usual translation about this. We have much to say, as we are about to find out <laughs> uh, just a little bit later on in this letter, and it is hard to explain. 
and we will also find out that it is hard to explain it's not a it's not a Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so level of argument at all it's it's some of the uh the uh for like in within the New Testament which has its fair share of challenging passages it is it is it is one of the more challenging not because it's convoluted as such but just because it is so uh it is uh complex and profound so we need to go very slowly in order to keep up with it yes rosemary what does it mean the word apostasy i've not met that before apostasy means that you uh give up on the faith you you forsake the faith oh right sorry yeah. that's right no that's why we're here so but he doesn't say it's hard to explain because it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing or perhaps slow uh, to hear. So he's blaming them. And this is the first time when he becomes he becomes quite stern uh, with the hearers. Uh, and this is something that is, I, I, it's the first thing I just want to spend a little bit of time on, not because it's difficult to understand. It's very easy to understand. He's saying that this is hard to explain to you because you have become dull of hearing. You've become slow to hear. So he's blaming their attitude to learning uh, the faith. And that becomes the theme of this next, uh, of these next few verses. And I just wanted to remind you of, um, the explanation of the, um, the third commandment in the small catechism, and I will put it on your screens. I hope you can see it. Yes. Mm-hmm. You shall sanctify the day of worship. What is this? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Not despise preaching his word. What does it mean to despise preaching and, and God's word? Not to want to hear it. Yes. And what what does that word despise specifically mean? You're absolutely right, Carol. To despise something. To hate it. I'd say it's, it's a weaker word than hatred. And it's not active. Yes. It's not active malice. No. Mm. Anybody want to chip in? Doesn't mean to despise something. Well, I think it's just you don't want any, to have anything to do with it, with whatever it is. Mm. I mean, yeah, basically, despising is when you when you hold something in, consider something to be of lo- low, little or no worth. Mm. So you treat it as something that has no worth or little worth. Should fear and love God that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. And what that means, and again, it's not difficult. I mean, this is obviously this, it's the small catechism. It's not in the Bible, but it's not very difficult to demonstrate that that's, that comes from the Bible. Mm-hmm. That we are, we are supposed to be eager to hear God's word and eager to learn God's word. Um, one of the reasons we had on, on Sunday, uh, just two days ago in, in Oxford, we had a very joyful occasion where two young members of the congregation were received to, uh, were welcome to receive first communion prior to confirmation. And one of the reasons why the practice, which is much older than first communion 
with confirmation what has has made his, has begun to wait, make his way back in the church is because coupling first communion with completion of catechetical teaching of the catechism and and confirmation is that it becomes like a, a like a term it's like the goal it's like you know when you get when you know you get your you you sit you go to school you get your exams then you get your certificate you graduate or whatever and in this case you go to school and then you get examined and then you get your certificate in this case the certificate is confirmation certificate and the reward is first communion and what it what it see what it indicate kind of signifies and what it has come to mean in practice in many places is that it's the end of your catechetical training you've you're you've now qualified you can now go on the road and drive your car you don't have to go to driving lessons anymore as opposed to thinking of it as okay you've now been given the basic training you've, you've got through boot camp and now the proper training becomes uh begins which is the rest of your life it, it lays the foundation for lifelong learning of the faith and again, I will have no difficulty demonstrating, uh, in, in most places that that has been, and that is very frequently missing. The idea that we continue to learn. Luther in the large catechism on the same topic more or less says that, you know, if you think that you become too good, a, too, too, uh, uh, learned a Christian to continue to constantly visit Christian doctrine, then, you know, maybe you're not a Christian at all. You know, we should be hungry and thirsty to learn. Mm. And it means that we don't just get, we don't only hear the same message, but that we all, we are always learning more so that we become more and more anchored and so that our understanding of what St. Paul calls the whole counsel of God grows and it's different for different people some people are quicker and better at learning or retaining things some people are capable of learning and and more and understanding more profoundly than others there's no kind of it's not that kind of thing it's not a law but rather it is simply a fact that we are called to grow in the knowledge of god's word and the writer to the hebrews says to his readers and i think many of us uh will be chastised by this that we become slow and dull of hearing we don't want to you know we don't we don't want the hard work of growing in the knowledge and understanding of these difficult things which are nevertheless salutary and important but we just we know we want to keep things simple now that that's not to say that if like childlike faith is inadequate but rather that we have been called to grow and mature. If we're children of God, what do children do? They grow and mature. We're children of God. That's what we are to do as well. And that's how we do it, by engaging ourselves in God's word. Now, I happen to be saying all of this to a group of people who are giving up an hour and a half of their Tuesday evening to be studying God's word. So I hope I'm preaching to the choir, at least to some degree. But it is something that is essential and central to uh, the Christian life. Looking back on some people that I learned and uh, I knew in my childhood, I'm quite struck by uh, some of the sort of Christian adults that uh, I was surrounded by growing up, who had very little formal education, had left school very early, working class, and 
people, smallholders, that sort of thing, who had spent a lifetime, nevertheless, continuing to study the scriptures, continuing to study, you know, reading old sermons by the reformers and others, you know, and, and, and constantly study God's word and ended up being teachers. I mean, I, I, I have heard many a pastor, uh, Telling their, you know, relating to their congregations what they had learned from these simple, you know, formerly little educated people who had nevertheless become very, very wise counselors in the faith because they had engaged themselves in the study of God's word for a lifetime. And I think there's something, something, something to be said for that. For some reason, which I don't know what that is, are the Lutheran church in this country, uh, and not only in this country, but in many other places, has lost that culture uh, on the whole. Um, if you, you know, in this, I would say that in this country, if you want to find the same kind of culture, you probably want to find yourself a sort of a, a conservative evangelical Anglican church, or maybe some some sort of some of the conservative other conservative evangelical churches where they prize these things. You know, where there's a lot of where members are ordinary members are encouraged really to study. And to learn particularly the scriptures, but also, you know, theology as a whole. And it's something that I, I obviously am encouraging you in as well. But that's, that's the, uh, kind of starting point. But the fact that they're finding this thing difficult, he say, well, you shouldn't. What's wrong with you? And he says, why, why have you become so, uh, reluctant to learn? Well, by this time, you ought to be teachers, i.e. experts. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God, i.e. the word of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, we have to be a little bit careful here because, of course, there are other places, for example, one uh, first letter of Peter, um, where we are told to, um, like newborn infants, to seek the milk of the word of God. So what, what does he mean by this when he says that anyone, anyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature? That they're learning the wrong way and not p- putting it in their brains to get it into their Way that they should be thinking about it, and um, it's not, well, what what is the, what is the wrong bit? What what's wrong about it? In this not learning quick enough, or not putting their minds to it. Yes. Anything else? And they need to do a lot first before they go on to things more difficult. Yeah, but I mean, yes, you're right. But I mean, in this particular case, he's chastising them for needing basic instruction. He's saying that you shouldn't be needing really basic instruction in the basic things. And we'll see what those basic things are in a moment. But so you, you know, your infant, in this case, infant, and of course, Jesus says, you know, you should, we should, uh, anyone wants to enter the kingdom of God must become like a child, which in Luke's gospel, he uses the word for an infant. It's a different word from here, but nevertheless, this, this word here means a young child or infant. 
So there's a sense in which we are to be like infants in the kingdom of God. And then in another sense where, where we are not to remain as infants. Because of course, this is a metaphor. It's not a contradiction, but there are different aspects of the Christian life. So in what sense ought we to remain as infants? Trusting and dependent on God, not um, ourselves. Exactly. So that's what it means to be enter the kingdom of God like a child. Right. You know, mm. these like in that particular incident is, you know, mothers were bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus. They didn't come there on the, you know, on, under their own steam. And we are to re- enter the kingdom of God like children. Mm. But once we are in the children of God, we are also in some, in one very important mm. sense, not to just remain as infants but to grow and mature. And what does it mean to grow and mature in the kingdom of God? To learn the word of God and all the things you're supposed to learn about it. You learn and there, and as you learn, you take in the word of God and become more faithful and more believing. Or perhaps I said that you understand knowledge and understanding grow. Yeah. Knowledge and understanding of God's word grow through the knowledge of the word itself. Yes. So that we, we can then, you know, we can say that God has, you know, like, you know, Samuel erects a stone at the, you know, at Ebenezer. Now thus far God has, uh, led us or brought us. So, yeah, and he has, and he said, we began with a very basic, I mean, a very basic understanding of the gospel. And now, as we have spent time studying God's word, all, you know, they're, they're very, if you like, a, a very basic, accurate, but basic line drawing has now been filled in. And it's got more and more detail and more and more color. And what happens to me as a result is that I have, I have grown in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as scripture tells me to. And that knowledge is also then, you know, it leads to, it's not, it's not the same as, but it leads to sanctification. That as I understand the will of God more, I also, then my mind is being trained by the Holy Spirit. You know, like it Paul says in Romans 12, you know, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And the transformation is an ongoing process. Or as the catechism put it in terms of baptism, that we, you know, that daily, that by daily remorse and repentance, the old Adam should be drowned and die, and a new person should daily come forth and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever, which Luther in a large catechism is very explicit about, explicit about says, you know, in this way, the old Adam will grow weaker and the new creation will grow stronger. Mm. And so this is what we are called to as Christians. Not to be unskilled in the word of righteousness, like a child, but to grow in maturity. And then that verse 14, which is a, um, it doesn't look at all tricky in a sense. It says, ESV says, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Sounds like it's a very simple thing to, you know, straightforward message, I think. And let's just uh, stop there for a moment and just look at what that what that implies. What does that translation say? Sorry, for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What does that mean? These people have got all the information in them 
and they're learning. It's not about these people. This is, I mean, this is a hypothetical people. So it's not, he's not referring to actual people. He's saying, he's saying you should be like that sort of person. A mature. What's the key? What's the key process by which maturity comes according to this? Practice. Practice by practice and training. Yeah, constant practice. It says there. Mm. Is is that what yours says as well, Carol? Your translation. Um. End of verse fourteen. Practice to distinguish good from evil. Same as mine. Yeah. So there's the idea of training or practice. Yeah, just practice. Yeah, and there is there is a um, there's something to be said for that in the sense that the habits that we form will shape us. Mm. Whatever habits we have, they shape us, one way or another. And and so if you are constantly practicing. Constantly training, um, yourself in the word of God to know true, you know, good from evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood, you will grow in discernment as a result. Mm. And there, you know, we could, one could give an umpteen different illustrations of this from, from kind of everyday life, depending on your profession. But if I just give one, I took one of my children to an instrumental lesson yesterday. And we came out of that and, and this, and, and he said to me, that was such a good lesson. Really, that instrument sounded so much better at the end of the lesson than at the beginning of the lesson. And apparently it was all about how you hold your elbow. Now, you have to have come quite a long way from first picking up an instrument to just say, actually, if you just do this with your elbow, the instrument all of a sudden opens up. But it does. And through constant practice and training, the teacher had so much maturity and knowledge and understanding of the instrument that they could just say, oh, you need to do this with your elbow. And the child goes, wow, look at that. Now he knows. And the more he practices that, the better he becomes at then producing that same sound with that same thing with the elbow, whatever it was. I don't understand what it was. And... You can take the same example from dancing or from cross-stitching or whatever else, you know, whatever your hobbies are <coughs> or professions. But um, I did a bit of digging around this particular thing, and it seems that it's not at all clear that that's what's being said here at all, even though that point is a point that is well worth making. Because the word that is used, which is translated as constant practice or NIV says constant use, occurs exactly once in the whole New Testament, and it's here. It's nowhere else used in the New Testament. It's not an uncommon word at all. There are thousands of instances of it in other literature, in Greek, but in the New Testament it's only used here. And it's uh, and and so if you look at different translations. Uh, you actually get quite a variety. But in English, all Bibles in English, and not only in English, but also in uh, in German and in Scandinavian languages, Nordic languages, they all agree roughly that it says what, it, what we just said it says. But that's not really the key meaning of that word. And there was a very uh, careful study of, of that particular word uh, by a scholar about 20-odd years ago, 
and it hasn't made it to any, any tribal translations. But um, I dug out that study and I, I had a quick read through it. Um, and the author makes a very, uh, very persuasive argument to say that this is, it's never really used. It doesn't mean that. That word simply just doesn't, it just doesn't mean what it, what that translation says. In the Septuagint, in the Greek Old Testament, it almost always refers to the physical constitution or physical frame of something. Um, physical condition, for example. Um, and so, and, and to cut a very long story, uh, very, very short, the, um, the key point here is not the act, the act of practice, but rather the, uh, condition that a person is in, which is a result of training. So it's, it's not unrelated, but that thing is, I said, trained. So the powers of discernment trained by what in Latin, they sometimes use the Latin word habitus, which refers to kind of a particular mental condition, mindset. That has been reached through training. And this is I've got education, uh, classical education until the early part of this, of the last century, about a hundred years ago. If you went to a good school, the school would see as its main task to create certain type of character in the pupils. That's what you're actually about. Not to give skills and knowledge as such. That's not the goal but the goal is to create a certain kind of young person so that when they leave, they are, they have been shaped and molded to be a certain type. And the skills and the knowledge that comes with it are the tools by which you reach that, not the goal in themselves. We, what's happened now is we've flipped that the other way around. The education is all about getting lots of knowledge and skills and say, well, what kind of people do we, you know, how do we get the children to be like that and learn those things? Oh, you know, let's teach them about hard work or diligence or kindness or whatever it is that we want them to do. Rather than seeing, you know, it's, it's the roles have been reversed. But in the ancient world, it was very much a case. Education is about forming a certain kind of person, character. And that, uh, mental, uh, so in, 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 uh, in, in athletics, you can talk about the physical condition. You know, you, you train and train and train until you're in such a physical state that, you know, you're either very fast or you've got great endurance or you become very agile or whatever it is that you require. And that then get transla- translated into or transferred into the mental, into mental image is actually that you formed a certain kind of, you created a certain kind of condition of mind by training. Which is able to recognize what is true. That's the idea here. So it's this trained, um, uh, condition of a person. So if you reread that, First, I say, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by, or through, rather, actually through, a, a trained, well-conditioned mind to distinguish good from evil. So I said, they're not completely different things, but I think the emphasis is in a different place. He's not saying practice, 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 practice. What he's actually saying is that a mature person, somebody who has reached a certain 
like a condition of a certain kind of mindset. And of course, that reminds us, I hope, of the meaning of the word repentance. Repentance, in the Bible, that word, what that means, in the Old Testament, the key idea of repentance is turning, literally turning. In the New Testament, that word means a... a it's simplistically translated as a change or a change or transformation of of mind. Now, it doesn't mean change of mind as in I I thought I wanted the black one, but actually I want the white one. But rather, that your mindset has been changed. What we in English might call a change of heart mm. is a transformation of your whole mental faculty, if you like. So, what you used to think was good, you now you know to be evil, and you reject it as such. What you used to rejoice in you now, grieve over. What you used to despise you now, honor and vice versa. That's what a, that's what repentance means. And so really you could say that solid food is for the mature, for those who have turned the powers of discernment, trained by effective repentance or true repentance to distinguish good from evil. And what it does is, if you read it like that, it takes the emphasis away from activity. Just do this and it will work. You know, turn the crank enough times and out comes a sausage. Rather, it's a, we actually, you are being, maturity is about being shaped and formed into a certain kind of person, not just into information and knowledge. Oh, that's true and that's real. Because, uh, you know, you can train, like you can tell, you can, I mean, already ancient Greek uh, philosophers kind of figure this out. That giving people information does not yet lead to good people. You know, how long have be uh, have we been told, for example, that smoking is bad for you, and somehow they keep selling cigarettes, and somehow young people still are learning to smoke, even though their grandparents knew that it was bad for you. And telling them doesn't make any difference. Certain kinds of kids start smoking, other kinds of kids don't start smoking and it's all to do with the kind of personality they are and the kind of character they are. They all have the same knowledge and information. And being told or practicing isn't the key but having reached that maturity. That makes sense. I I hope I, I, it took me a long time to puzzle kind of puzzle that out this afternoon. I, I spent a long time on that. So uh, but I hope that it's, it's made it clearer for you. I don't know if he has. Please tell me if he hasn't. Has. And Pastor, this are, does it, does yeah. it not also um, have an influence on the um, the kind of upbringing you've had as well? The um, oh, I had the word in my mind a minute ago. The environment that you are well, if you take smoking <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll take that as the easy one um, I mean when I was ch- a child everybody smoked I don't know why but I never did I've no idea why um, but my parents did and that would be a more natural thing to do so would the environment that you're immersing yourself in have something to do with that I think it has an awful lot to do with it which is one reason, and we'll get to this towards the end of Hebrews, why it's so important that Christians stick around other Christians. 
Right. Yeah. And we support yeah. and encourage one another, mm. not because of smoking or but because of maturing. No, it's no, it's, it's, it's much, much harder to mature as a Christian if you're all alone and the rest yeah. of your time you're spending in yeah. places where your spiritual maturity is not encouraged but discouraged or where yeah. it's not been nurtured but it's actually being undermined. Mm. Not necessarily actively, but just by the very fact, you know. I know. You know, if, if you want to, if you want to, you know, let's say, for example, if you're a recovering alcoholic, you probably don't want to go into pubs a lot because it's not going to help you in developing a lifestyle that doesn't involve drinking. And if you're a recovering sinner, as you all are, and we all are, then that should make us think very carefully about, carefully about what sorts of things we, um, kind of engaged in, uh, engage in and where we prioritize our time and our effort and our focus i remember when i was at university we used to go to every saturday night there was a bible reading at the at university christian union and some of them were excellent some of them were less excellent they're very but i i remember one or two of them and one i remember just a little detail this um uh this pastor from a church i can't remember what kind of church came and did, did a whole talk and he's like often they were they were kind of, they were much to do with evangelism and he said that I had got one regret about my time at university is that I spent too little time in the pub. <laughs> His point was that he, he spent too, too, too much time with other Christians and not enough time with un, non-Christians. And it was a very striking point to make. And he had a, he, he was making a perfectly valid point. I'm not sure if, if in retrospect, looking back on it so, some years later now, I'm not sure that it was necessarily the best advice for most Christians, most young Christians at the university age 19 or 20. The general problem with young Christians at that age when they've just left home is not that they tend to become too zealously and isolatedly Christian. The general problem is that an awful, you know, far too many Christians actually, young, young Christians lose their way in the faith when they leave home. And most of them aren't called to be evangelists who, who should be hanging around in pubs with unbelievers. Actually, what they need is real nurturing in the faith. Time will come. They're not the ones who've been, you know, he's saying to these people, you know, you should be teaching others. And now here we are instructing you in the basics. But I don't think he was talking to the, you know, the university, yeah, you know, uh, University of Rome Christian Union, this letter. I think this was to, to a different, different, uh, clientele. So I think that's a valid point, Carol. That's an important, important thing that I, but it's not just about, and certainly it's, it's, it's much less about our choices kind of sitting in our, in our suspended isolation as it is about where we find ourselves and the kind of life with which, into which we enter. Mm-hmm. You know, when you enter the Christian church, you're entering into an existing society and community. You're not making, you're not starting from scratch. You're joining something that already exists. And and it either it will shape you or something else will shape you, but something will shape us. Mm. And then our own personal habits and choices will either encourage or discourage that development. Which is why it's important that we don't just we don't only you know we don't think of church, you know Christianity as being the thing you do for an hour, an hour and a half on a Sunday, but actually this at the core of our life, even if we can't spend the most the greatest number of hours because of necessities of life. Most, Christ- most Christians in the history of the world have spent most of their waking hours working really hard to put bread on the table. 
and that's necessary necessary in this world. But then when 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 you do then get a break from that, having Jesus and, and the word of God at the heart of our life as opposed to on the periphery, as an essential thing as opposed to an accessory, will make all the difference to everything else. It's about ordering and prioritizing and about centering our life in the right place, by building, you know, building on the, uh, having as the foundation the right thing. Okay. And so that then leads him to having kind of laid out his, his, uh, admonition at the beginning, his, his reprimand. Therefore, chapter six, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And this sounds really controversial, doesn't it? Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith, faith towards God and of instruction about washings, laying out of hand the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, tell me, somebody tell me how best to misunderstand that. If we were to misunderstand this passage, what would we say? Well, it reminds me of, um, you know, things we've heard people say to us in the past, the idea that, you know, you get preached the gospel until you become a Christian. And then once you've become a Christian, you move on from that and you start, you know, looking into, I don't know, all sorts of weird and wonderful things, or it's all about what are you doing for Jesus and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that you, you know, you, you leave behind those essentials of your faith. Whereas I would argue from personal experience, I need to hear those things again and again and again as part of my you know, staying in Christ. Right. I think both your, uh, and a description of the problem and, and, uh, biased as I may be, your, your, uh, response to it, I think are, are, are both spot on. Um, this idea that we, you know, your gospel is for the unbelievers. And once you believe, then that's the last time you hear the gospel. Now you hear some other stuff we want you to know, be learning about, which doesn't seem right. I mean, if you read the letters, including this letter to the Hebrews is full of the gospel. It's not just saying, actually, you know, you know, assume the gospel. Now, here's the other stuff I want you to know about. The gospel keeps coming back in different guises and different levels. What you notice, however, here in Hebrews, in Hebrews, rather, is that he doesn't lay out the gospel for as if you'd never heard it before. It is the gospel, but it's the the like the level uh, level of teaching is quite sophisticated. It's giving us a very fine-grained, like a very detailed picture of something far more than we are all sinners. God sent his son, Christ died on the cross, and now we are forgiven through faith in him. Now we've been baptized, and one day we will be raised to eternal life. No, it's you start looking, there's actually a whole lot more going on under that surface. Now, that surface is the truth, but, you know, we if you're, we're looking... You know, we're looking into the into the um, into the clockwork behind that uh, behind the clock face. What it actually implies, but it's still the gospel. And it's a great encouragement in in one's faith when, you know, for example, you're sitting in a sermon or a Bible study, and someone reveals to you all the amazing links, for example, between things from creation and all sorts of things in the Old Testament that you hadn't understood before, and how they all relate back to Jesus. And mm-hmm. you know, great encouragement that actually is consistent through the whole of. You know, God's salvation history. Yes, and, and I think it's essential because otherwise we we'll never understand our Bibles. We said, oh, here's the bit about creation. Here's a bit with all the you know stories from the Old Testament. Here's the law. Here's this and that. But 
how does he hold together? It just becomes so much knowledge to have, but he doesn't, you know, what if, I, I, I fear sometimes that if you know, there are too many Christians, but if you just told them, actually, just never mind the Old Testament, they wouldn't notice any difference. <laughs> and it does make up like a big chunk of your Bible. You know, it's, it's not other, and, and without the Old Testament, we don't have the gospel. Uh, it's even so much, I remember there's, um, Famous Roman Catholic theologian in the, in the writing in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And he, he wrote some very, um, erudite and very, uh, uh, challenging books, uh, difficult to read books on the doctrine of the Trinity. And his big criticism was that doctrine of the Trinity for most Christians is something that we know we have to believe in. But if it wasn't true, it wouldn't make any difference. You know, we believe it because we've been told to, but if we said actually there is no Trinity, he said, well, that wouldn't change anything because we didn't understand it well enough. But it's not about moving away from the gospel, but it's drilling into the gospel. And I think the key word, so why, how can, how can we say this? The key word here is not, uh, when it says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. What? Isn't that what we're supposed to be grounded in? And go on to maturity, but the key word is not laying again a foundation. I, let's not, you know, let's not go to, let's not find ourselves in a position where we are having to rebuild from the ground up again. And I would argue that if the last time you heard the gospel was the night that you sit, pray the sinner's prayer or were baptized or join the church or whatever, whatever thing you, uh, you know, different traditions have as as the moment that you come to faith. If that's the last time you hear the gospel, you probably will leave the foundation laying on again twenty years later if you haven't heard it since. Whereas if you are hearing the gospel all the time, you don't have to lay the foundation again. So this is talking about the laying on the foundation. First of all, when it says, "And let us leave the elementary to Christ," and it says, "And go on to maturity," it says in English. Um, the actual verb that is translated is "go on." to uh, is actually let us be carried it's a passive it's not something we do I don't know why it's translated to go on to because it really doesn't mean that it says be carried and generally speaking rule of thumb here's one for your reading the bible if there's a if there's a passive where we're not told who's doing the doing he who humbles himself will be exalted. By whom? Then the, unless you have reason to think otherwise, the answer always is God. It's known as the divine passive. And it's partly linked to the fact that by the, by the first century, Jews were already very reluctant to name God unnecessarily for fear of breaking the third commandment. So you try to avoid saying God necessarily. That's why you have things like Jesus and things like you will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power. What's that power? It's actually a, it's a Jewish shorthand for God. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, he talks about the kingdom of heaven, whereas the other Gospels talk about the kingdom of God. So there are all these right, roundabout ways of avoiding unnecessarily naming God. And so he says, let us be carried, who by? By God. So you, by being carried by God, obviously, we're not being taken away from the gospel. But the point is that we're not going back to square one as Christians. Because the laying of the foundation 
refers to the elements of the basic catechesis, the basic Christian instruction that you receive on becoming a Christian. Remember, this is the time when vast majority of Christians are becoming Christians as adults. These are very early stages of the Christian church. And so when you are learning, you know, remember, you know, think of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. And Philip says, you know, you know, Philip gets into the chariot and starts to explain to him all things concerning, you know, the good news of Jesus, beginning with the scripture from Isaiah. And at the end of that instruction, the eunuch says, here's some water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? And that tells us that even though we haven't been, you know, we don't have a record of what Philip said, is that in that short basic catechesis, basic Christian instruction, he had already learned about the significance of baptism. He'd been given a package about Jesus, and but not just in the abstract or in the, in the past, this is what Jesus has done, this is who Jesus is, but also this is how you receive Jesus, so that he knew to request baptism. And so there's this basic foundation. If you look at the, what is, what does the foundation consist of? We got a list of there. Somebody. There are six items. There's washing and laying on of hands, resurrection, eternal judgment. Yes, that's four. That's four. I'm looking for the other two. <laughs> There's um, de- uh, repentance from dead works and faith towards God. That's right. So it starts in verse one. Repentance from dead works. What are dead works? What makes it work de- dead? Uh, sins. Yeah, this is work that produces death. I.e. from sins. So it doesn't mean works that are in themselves dead, but that they are works of death, if you like. Um, uh, you could even translate it as works of death. Um, faith towards God. So repentance and faith, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Basic stuff. Washings. <laughs> the... Uh, Word washings here is, uh, well, if you're reading the New International Version, you would say instruction about baptisms. Because the word is baptismon. However, the word that is used for washings here is not the usual, although it sounds like baptism, it's not the usual word that is translated as baptism. Because baptism actually means washing. That's what it means. It's, it, it's not a technical term in the New Testament era. It's just an everyday term. I mean, in Mark chapter 7, we talk about the washings of pots and pans and dining couches. The word there is baptisms as well. It's exactly the same word as here. But these come, the word comes in two different forms. And this, the form that is normally used for baptism is, is the, the other one from this one. So this seems to be washings, which would be what? What washings? Oh, yeah, sorry, you're, you're muted. Um, would it be the Jewish r- ritual washings? So it might be ritual washings of Judaism and baptism. 
So baptisms is just one of the, if like one of the washings, there are all these Jewish ritual washings. These are Jewish Christians, remember. And if you are converting to Judaism from paganism in the first century, that involves ritual washings. They, there was in, in, in synagogues, synagogues or near synagogues, often in, in areas where there were lots of Gentiles, they would have a pool, like a baptismal pool for these ritual washings. And we obviously have the boss washing, the baptism of John the Baptist, which is not the same thing as the Christian baptism, the pre-Christian baptism. So there are all these different washings. So there's a kind of teaching of all these different washings of which baptism is the one. But in this setting, you'd have instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, which in uh, is associated with the giving of the Holy Spirit at baptism, which, by the way, is the origin of the rite of confirmation. Rite of confirmation, if you, if you get baptized in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you get baptized and confirmed. They don't use the word confirmed, but chrismated on the same, and the same day. So what happens is you get baptized and immediately after your baptism, you're anointed with oil and hands are laid on you. And that is the chrismation. That's the, and, and they associate, and they, there's a kind of, um, and what happened in the West is that because of various things, I won't go to the whole story, the two became separated in time and then the time, the gap grew and grew and grew. But originally they were, they belonged together. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, future events. So those are they've like <coughs> the six items. We don't want to go back to starting with from scratch from these. The implication not being that these things don't matter, but rather you should know this stuff already. This is like really basic stuff. You know, you you don't start a training. You know, if you go to a professional training uh, football club and on a on the training ground on Monday after the weekend, they don't say, "Okay, boys, that's the goal. This is the ball." You know, you know that stuff already. We're going to do some more complex stuff now, and that's that. You know, so we're not moving away from it, but we're building. We're not staying on the on the foundation. We be, be we build on the foundation. We don't just keep laying it again and again and again. And so he starts going, and, and and this is what leads us to verse 4. So he, we, this we will do. That is, leave the elementary doctrine and go on to maturity. Um, just final thing about this leaving the elementary doctrine. It's... Um, it's a some, It's a slightly... Uh, un, I think it's a slightly unhelpful translation or unhelpful phrase. Because as you said, there's elementary doctrine, there's there's kind of a high, higher level doctrine, and 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 we leave the. It's more a sense that we leave the the basics or the or the or the beginnings. That the word that's translated as elementary is is its kind of brute meaning is beginning. So we leave the beginning of the word about Christ. We leave the kind of the 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 first. First stage, the, the, the basic step, and we move on, not away from, but upwards. We don't stay at the beginning. And this is, I think, the danger of sometimes, sometimes in, uh, Lutheran preaching, we have this danger and it's, it exists in, in different, different Lutheran cultures in, and, and, and churches differently. This idea that, you know, you go to church and every sermon is the same sermon which is that you're a sinner who needs forgiveness. Christ died on the cross and uh, you've been baptized, you've been absolved and here's the Lord's Supper, go home. And it's a great sermon, but it is in some way, in sense, it's the elementary doctrine. And if you, if that's all you get fed, 
uh, or your Christian life, you'll end up looking an awful lot like those calves that end up as veal. Bit too much milk and not enough exercise. I think this must be a particular challenge for you in your role. And it's very good, therefore, that you teach new Christians individually. You know, you actually go through the catechism because otherwise, well, it's like for me teaching a lesson to a whole class and everyone's at a very different place in their learning or in your case, in their Christian life and knowledge and understanding. And you can't preach. Well, I presume it's a challenge to preach a sermon that is just as apt for the newcomer who's very, you know, hearing things for the first time and needs those foundations laid to people who have, you know, grown up in the faith for many, many years and are wanting to constantly build on those foundations. It is a real challenge. Um, and there's also the challenge that not only is it that you have some people who have, who have had less time to learn than others, but also there are some people who are less able to learn than others. And then there are people who are less keen to learn than others. You have lots of different kinds of Christians there. And, uh, I sometimes get criticized uh, for being repetitive. But it's actually by design. <laughs> it's on purpose. I, I, I tell the same story and I say some of the same things again and again and again, because you can't be sure, you know, if you're the one who notices that the repetitions, you're one of the ones who's alert, but not everybody is. <laughs> and also if you notice that the pastor said the same thing three times in the sermon, you're one of the ones who managed to concentrate all the way through. But not everybody does. And some people start concentrating from the beginning and lose concentration halfway through and then pick it up again. Other people start concentrating 10 minutes in because their minds are somewhere else and so on. So, you, you know, the, it is a real, it, it is a real challenge for preachers. And that's one reason why I'm not a fan of very short sermons where every sentence just follows on from the next one and just boom, boom, boom. You know, it's very tightly constructed because if you miss it, if you miss a step, you, you know, that's it. Um, at least, at least that's my, my excuse for, for preaching slightly more wordy, slightly more roundabout sermons. It is actually by design for that reason. And I, I know that is sometimes, sometimes more successful, sometimes less successful. That's, that is just the nature of humans being allowed to preach a word of God, I'm afraid. But yeah, it is. And I don't know how one trains that. I never taught preaching to others. Um, and I, I do sometimes wonder how one, how you best teach that. Because you can't, it's, it's one of those things you, in a sense, you just have to know, know your people. Right. Mm. Oh, sorry. I thought you, you, okay. Thank you. And so let's go to verse four. Here comes the, the thing that you've been waiting to, to get your teeth into. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I'd like to, I would like to come at, come at this, um, uh, slightly backwards. Uh, first of all, what is it what is it referring to when he speaks of those who have participated in these gifts? What are the things that these people have had a taste of? The teaching that they were given that they may have forgotten. Now, which bit of it? Uh, never mind the forgetting bit, but just a, where, where does he talk about teaching? It doesn't. Does he not? 
Well, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just asking you well, specifically, what does it refer to in those verses four and five particularly? I guess it refers to baptism, the Lord's Supper in the Bible. Where does it refer to baptism? Uh, enlightened. Sorry, Correct. Baptism. Yes. In the early church, and this went well into the third century at least, baptism was often referred to as enlightenment. So those who have been enlightened, who have once been enlightened, so that means those who've been baptized. And of course, baptism in itself is a bringing into the, you know, being brought out of darkness into light, hence the enlightenment. But of course, it also involves a metaphorical enlightenment in the sense that baptism is accompanied before and after by instruction so that you're brought out of ignorance into knowledge. But that enlightened bit means it refers specifically to being baptized. Where's the Lord's Supper? Uh, is it? Uh, the heavenly gift. Yeah, tasted the heavenly gift. Mm. And that word tasted is again, it's, it's literally that. What else? They tasted the powers to come, so they were going away from the knowledge. That all of that, all of the things in four and five are good things. Receiving of the Holy Spirit. Receiving, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Uh, that word, uh, sharing is, by the way, is, is exactly the same word that was translated as, uh, living on milk. Uh, it's, is actually partaking of. It's a share, it's a literally, over literally, it's a having together with others. Co-having. So they've shared in the Holy Spirit. So they've received the uh, shared in the Holy Spirit. What else? They have fallen restore them again to repentance. We're just in four and five. So shared in Holy. Tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Tasted mm. the goodness of the Word of God. So there's the word they have, and it doesn't say they have heard the word of God, they have tasted the goodness. I just love that phrase, that you taste the goodness. And There's a wonderful psalm, uh, psalm verses, taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is, it's, it's not just a, you know, uh, think and, think and consider, it's a taste and see. It's a, it's an all-encompassing thing. They taste the goodness of the word of God. And this put, should put us uh, also in mind of Psalm 119, which talks of the law of God be like honey in the mouth. I, I remember seeing a documentary years ago about a, a Jewish, uh, in, uh, it's an ultra-Orthodox Jewish primary school in Jerusalem, and they teach the children to read Hebrew, the Hebrew alphabet. And they, they actually have these books, which before the lesson, the teacher smears the pages, the kind of waterproof pages smears them with honey, and they get the children to actually taste and see that, you know, to see the honey, the word is like honey in the mouth is. And the documentary suggested that this was a terribly evil and manipulative thing to do. I think it's actually quite sweet. Um, 
if you pardon the pun. Um, but yeah, so you taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, there it, it has a that, um, the the this experience of God's gifts has had, if you like, a discernible or tangible impact of experiencing the power of the age to come. In other words, the life of God's kingdom, what what we might call a transformation of a person, and the age to come. This word I, I is the eon. It's kind of it's, you know there's it kind of like an era. There's the eon, the time before the fall. We live in the post-fall world but we also live in the age of it of the time of of the resurrection and we were we are looking forward to the time when you know to an eon or a world where there is no where there is no death anymore where sin is put away and this is by the way in the in the nicene creed when we speak of the uh you know creative you know uh begotten before all worlds that's the complete it is really misleading translation it actually means all before all ages before there was any of these eras, uh, if you like. So they are, they are, they are powers of the age or the era to come. The key, the thing that for which we pray in the Lord's Prayer. They have had all of these things. And I think this is really important that we see this because one of the ways in which some people get away from the meaning of this text is to say, well, these are people who've shared, participated in the external life of the church, in the visible church, but they're not true Christians. You know, these are people who've kind of externally participated in all these things, but they, they're not actual Christians because it says things like tasted or shared or things like that rather than really genuinely and profoundly, whatever it is. If Aren't that they on to, their way to being Christians though? Are these? No, people? I'm, I'm saying that some people say that I'm also saying that that's wrong. All right. Because these words tasting and sharing are not words that imply some kind of being in the kind of, you know, um, being a novice who's kind of getting, having a little trial, but doesn't actually join up. These are words that are used about actual participation in the life. If you've been enlightened, you've been enlightened. That means that it doesn't just mean that, you know, something, something's been kind of flashed in your direction, but it's not really, it's not, it's not fully paid up. The reason people say this is often theologically motivated and I'm uh, and and this is particularly for the benefit of those who who like the Calvinist theology I'm thinking of Adrian in particular who loves a bit of Calvin which is this idea of uh, in in reformed theology is called uh, uh, perseverance of the elect or perseverance of the saints which is often kind of characterized you know simplified as once saved always saved. And it's a doctrine which is based on some passages in the New Testament which says that, uh, which claims that if you are an actual genuine Christian, you cannot not become a Christian. You can't lose your faith. You can't lose your salvation. Once you've been truly received the Holy Spirit, he won't leave you. I even remember, um, I remember one conversation, um, years ago amongst theologians, where I said, I've, I've never understood, you know, when he says in the Psalm, he says, you know, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And the, and the why, why, you know, why does the Bible say that? Because obviously we don't lose the Holy Spirit. And the, and the reply from the other was, and these are professional theologians said, oh, Dennis, that's in the Old Testament. And that was kind of like, okay, that's it then. <laughs> There's so many problems with that. Anyway, if that's what you're thinking, stop. These words mean these are people who have genuinely participated in the gifts of God. Mm-hmm. And if your solution to this problem is simple, it's almost certainly wrong. Simple but wrong. The correct answer is, is more complicated than that. 
so, what is it uh, saying then? It is said, it is, what it is saying is that once you have, it is impossible, once you have tasted these things, once you have participated in these, and then have fallen away, again to restore them to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So, next question is, what is it that he is referring to? I assume it's a he. What is the actual sin that is being referred to here? Don't answer quickly. Answer slowly. I don't know. That's okay. Sin against the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? So say that again, Raya. Sin against the Holy Spirit that is not forgiven. Mm. I fear that if you say it like that, you've taken us from one mystery to another. <laughs> so what do those both things refer to? What is the sin against the Holy Spirit here? This is by the way, Jesus. Jesus says talks about the sin against the Holy Spirit, which cannot be forgiven. But it's not just about not believing, because the world is full of people who didn't believe and now believe. So what is the problem here? Now, the reason I'm asking this is because a lot of Christians have read this and have become utterly terrified hmm. for themselves. Because, you know, if, if you fall into some grievous sin, as Christians sometimes do, not all, but some, and actually are guilty of some serious sin, and this is, I'm told that this is particularly common if you know, for Christians fall into kind of grievous sexual sin, for example. Have an affair or something like that. And said, you know, is this me now? Am I, am I beyond redemption? What is this referring to? What does it, what does it seem to be talking about? Answer is in verse six. Well, if they commit apostasy, is that the, the, the bit we need to know that they deny God, fall away from them? Right. That's it. You, you put your, you, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's talking about those who deny the faith. Jesus has some words to say about this. What does Jesus say about those who deny him? He will deny them. He will deny them. Already Jesus was very conscious in his earthly ministry that there would be great pressure on his disciples on account of persecution, and he warned against it. If you think of the parable of the sower, as we have been on and off in various settings uh, in recent weeks, you got the different kinds of soil. And there isn't a bit says, you know, there some fell into, uh, you know, some fell onto a rocky place. There wasn't much depth of soil. So the sower came back and scooped it up and found some better place for it. No, it got, it withered and died. Mm-hmm. And that was persecution. Had no depth of, he had no depth of soil. No root. And isn't that exactly what this passage is talking about? Mm-hmm. About growing deep roots and not just growing on the surface. That's what, that's the whole learning God's word and growing in maturity is about growing those deep roots so that we're not shaking up. But, you know, there, there's this, uh, quite amusing thing on social media. I, I never see it myself, but I occasionally people send this to me where somebody writes a social media post like, 
where they think that they kind of in a simple step they completely destroy the faith faith in God. So uh, one somebody sent me this recently said he was a basically saying Christians said that God is all knowing, and yet in the very beginning of the Bible he says to Adam, "Where are you?" Like. And I said, if your faith is shaken by that challenge, then you've got real problems. You need to really go back to Sunday school at that point. I said, oh, never thought of that. Actually, we have thought about that. But, you know, it's about growing deep roots so that we're not shaken by every every challenge, especially when it going gets really hard. When somebody says to you, would you like us to put you and uh, put you in chains and send you down to the salt mines, knowing that you probably won't come back alive? Or would you just like to hate? Just leave that thing. Or, no, you could carry on being a Christian and we will disinherit you and we will never have anything to do with you and we might try to kill you, your own family. Or you could just not carry on. You could just come back. You know, we're talking about that kind of scenario. It's You need to have deep roots so they can withstand knowing what is actually, and hence the tasting of the power of powers of the coming age. You know that something's coming that is worth waiting for. That is worth suffering. If you then fall away from that, you give up on your repentance and you crucify once again the Son of God. That is to say, you hold him up in contempt, holding up to contempt. You no longer honor him, but you hold him in contempt by denying the promises concerning him. So this is not talking about any old thing. These are people who actively, who, who publicly deny the faith. And I think there's a distinction between those people and those people who kind of gradually kind of will, you know, as we know of people who have been kind of gradually, their love grows cold. Their faith begins to weaken and they kind of drift away. Mm. And that's, that's, a, that's, I don't think it is addressing that situation. Those people need to hear this. Yes. As a warning. But this is, is specifically referring to those who deny the faith. And this became a real headache for the early church because then you had these really nasty persecutions, especially in the third and early fourth centuries. They got, it got really violent. Well, we are told that a very good proportion of the bishops who took place, who took part in the Council of Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed was formulated, which is only about uh, less than 20 years after the last persecution, there's a good number of people who were physically maimed. They're bishops who were missing an eye or a limb or had been had to walk with a stick because of the last persecution. And many people did forsake the faith. And then once the persecution passed, they said, actually, we didn't mean it and wanted to come back. And the church, his first huge division, which was never healed, was over that. What do you do with these people? And there were some, they called novations, who said, that's it. They blew it. No repentance. They denied a lot of glory. It says so in Hebrews 6. Others, and this became the majority position, said actually if people truly demonstrate their repentance, then it's not that, you know, saying, no, it's not that we can't, you know, it says it's impossible for us to bring them to repentance, but if they actually truly are repentant, then God has been gracious to them and given them repentance. But then they made it, they made the test case, test really harsh. 
said, okay, you can come back, but you are excommunicated until we decide otherwise, and that otherwise could be 10 years. Because, you know, this is, you know, we don't want fair weather Christians. And they made them squeak, <laughs> suffer, if you like, to demonstrate that they really, really were, they had learned repentance over their, this most horrendous sin. But there is no promise for such people. There is no promise. They know, you know, deny Christ, but you'll be all right. So no, you crucify the Lord of glory and, and that's it. Well, we have Peter, of course, denied Christ and was very graciously forgiven. Also, also we have the a prodigal, story of the prodigal son. This is true. You have to be a little bit careful with those. Peter, uh-huh. Peter's denial came after Jesus had promised him a future. He, Jesus said, this is what will happen. And when you, re- when you return, mm. strengthen your brothers. And we not, and, and not everyone has been given that. And secondly, the prodigal son, of course, in a sense, um, yes, this is, this is true. The prodigal son gives us comfort and hope. Um, there's a side difference between the prodigal son saying, the prodigal son didn't say, you're not my father. He said, you are my father, but I don't, I don't really care for you. I don't want to be with you. I, I just want, I, I want, I want to live as if you didn't exist anymore. So, I'm not, I'm not trying to be difficult <laughs> or to, to take the, the, you know, but I think we need to take the full force of this. At the same time, knowing that God is able to do, God, you know, God is, is, uh, God is tied to his promises. He can go beyond them. He will never give us less than what he promises, but he can give us more. But we don't have that freedom. Mm. We can't say, Oh, God can do more. They, of course he can, but he has, if he hasn't promised to do it, or he has warned that he might not, then we must act as if that's it. You know, if, you know, if, if, if you are, if you are, if you have a, uh, an income, you'd be a very foolish person to overspend beyond your income in the expectation that your boss or your pension fund or whatever will probably give you more money eventually because they can, because they've got loads of money. So, well, they can. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet my house on it. Because they haven't promised it. So that's the key difference. So I think we have to understand it rightly. There's a narrow application to it, to a very specific problem, but it's not particularly compromising. And it is in fact in line with what Jesus himself teaches. We are nearly out of time, so I I will speed up a little bit. In Matthew chapter 12 and in parallel passages in Luke, we have Jesus speaking about the person from whom an unclean spirit is driven out. Do you remember this? And he goes around wondering about waterless places, then comes back, finds the place clean swept, and uh, comes back with seven spirits worse than itself. And the state of the first, the last state of that person is worse than the first. It's talking about exactly the same thing. Peter in his second letter. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. And it's worse because first time they were ignorant, then they were enlightened. And despite their enlightenment, not out of ignorance, but out of rebellion or out of unbelief, they rejected that which they knew to be the truth. And you're worse off. I mean, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, 
in one of his books. He very strongly defends infant baptism first. And then he says, but the universal practice of baptizing every infant that's presented to the church is terribly dangerous and a very bad idea. This is in the setting of a, in a German state church setting where all children are baptized unless they are, you know, parents are actually active atheists or, or Jewish or something. Because what you're doing is that you are, you're indiscriminately giving this gift of salvation to children who are then never, who are then taught to, brought up to despise it. And they're given a gift and then they're brought up to sin against that gift. And you're making the worse off rather than better off. Now we can argue that either way. But I think, I think that's a warning that needs to be heeded. And I'm really conscious of the fact that we haven't actually got anywhere near the end of this passage, but we have got to the end of our time. But there's nothing like a cliffhanger, an unresolved argument to get people to come back next week. So we are going to stop there, halfway through the argument. And I apologize, it's, it's just poor time management on my part. I do hope that it wasn't a waste of your time, and I hope it's been it's not been fluffy and and things. But uh, I did warn you, didn't I, that it's it's an involved and 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 sort of knotty passage. I do think, however, that. You know, having, having kind of looked at it again, and when we'll, when we get to the end of this passage, uh, next time, I hope they will be even clearer that the, um, it is genuinely pro, genuinely difficult. The difficulty is for us to accept it rather than to understand it, which should make us very cautious about throwing it away. And I think it can be brought into harmony with the rest of scripture in such a way that we don't have to say, okay, this bit is actually, you know, that this is teaching something, something that isn't found anywhere else. Remember that that's the principle with these so-called antilegomena, the disputed books, is that if a book of the New Testament is disputed, it's not universally accepted, then we read it as God's word, but if it teaches something that is nowhere else in Scripture taught that in that disputed book, then we kind of treat it as a, you know, take it with caution. You know, the reference in Jude to, you know, letter of Jude to what Saint Mark, Archangel Michael says to Satan, that sort of thing. Well, that's nowhere else in the Bible. It's okay. So, so we don't make that into a fundamental doctrine of the church. And some people have taken this passage and done the same with it. It says it here, but it doesn't say it's, you know, the rest of the scripture does talk differently. I'm not convinced. I think this is actually in line with what the scriptures say elsewhere, provided that we correct, understand it correctly and carefully carefully tease out what is being said and what is not being said. So we're halfway through doing that. Um, so we'll have to carry on next time. But that's, I suppose, because it's a good thing. Maybe we're, we're just making the, we're making the meal last longer, which is uh, always a good thing. Any final uh, uh, comments or questions at this point, uh, given that we haven't uh, concluded? Would it be wrong to say that... Um... If you don't believe you've had it. I wouldn't put it like in those terms because, uh, because it's, it's, it's too blanket. It's, it's too broad. Uh huh. This passage, it doesn't say anybody who doesn't believe. Or forgot to. Or has, has forgotten. It says properly. specifically those who have be, received all the gifts of God, mm-hmm. including the Holy Spirit and the power of, of God's kingdom and have uh, fallen away and this fallen away is, is not just kind of, they kind of, you know, lost their balance and, and tumbled to the floor, but it's a kind of idea that you, you've actually, it, it, it's a sort of a same, same idea that we have with the fall. 
which is an act of rebellion, not just an accidental mm-hmm. tripping. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you in a sense, you are repeating the sin of Adam and Eve, having already been redeemed from it. Right. So it's that. But we don't say you've had it. We say we it's impossible to re- restore them to repentance, mm-hmm. knowing at the same time that if God in his freedom decides to do the impossible, well, all the more praise and thanks to him for that. (coughs) And final thing before we finish is because I don't want anyone to be troubled by this passage for your own, you know, for yourselves, is that this is issued as a warning to believers, Mm -hmm. not as a judgment against anyone. This has been, this is spoken to those who do believe to warn them against turning from God's grace. So none of you is being addressed as those who are beyond redemption. All of you are being addressed as those who must be mindful of this reality so that you do not become careless about your salvation or fall away when it's going as hard. It doesn't describe any particular person. Except Esau, but we'll talk about Esau next time. Let's close with prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that you are faithful, you're gracious and merciful. We thank you for the instruction of your word and the guidance of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we Continue to meditate on your word that you would help us to grow deep roots into the good soil of your word and your spirit by the power of your spirit, that we would grow in maturity and stand firm so that when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, we might be found in him, holding fast to your promises. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.